Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz drummer, pianist, vibraphonist, and composer, the legendary Joe Chambers. He was born and bred in Philadelphia, and he talked at length about a great many things with Neon Jazz. He talked about his newest album, full of sound and beautiful vibes, and it is called Landscapes. And prior to that, he released Moving Pictures Orchestra live at Dizzy's Coca-Cola in NYC. He spent a year at the Philadelphia Conservatory and would go on to captivate the world after moving to New York in 1963. He would play on Freddie Hubbard's LP, Breaking Point, and he would go on to play with the best in the avant-garde jazz realm, with cats like Eric Dolphy. Then he would gig with the likes of Charlie Mingus, Wayne Shore, Bobby Hutcherson, McCoy Tyner, Chick Corea, and so many more over his career. His mentor is Max Roach, and he has been a part of that outfit known as M Boom, a percussion ensemble. He is full of great stories, wisdom, and cool. So dig Joe and this interview, my friends. Hey, thanks for taking a little time out for me today. Yeah, sure. So I'm going to go ahead and dive right in here. Just kind of give me a brief overview of what's been going on with you lately. I moved to... Um Wilmington, North Carolina in 2008. I had a position down here at the University of North Carolina as a so-called distinguished professor of jazz. So uh, I've been a professor since 2008 here in the, uh, the University of North Carolina. And uh, that's why I'm currently living here. You know, teaching involved in all the academic stuff. Uh, but I, I've been... Um, I made uh, a couple of records, as you can see. I made uh, the Moving Pictures Orchestra record I did in 2012, and uh, it, it came out in 2013, and it got a nomination. And I'm proud of that that piece because it's a large orchestra, and I did the uh, <coughs> or, or com you know composing and arranging. Uh, it's actually. That music is from a 2004 commission from the Lincoln Center, Jazz and Lincoln Center people, to do a piece in 2004. Uh, that's what that whole music, most of that music is from that. Not doing a lot of appearing, you know, working because of the uh, position. I did go to Europe a couple times. We went, we did, uh, I did a tour in 2010 with the World Saxophone uh, Group with David Murray and Mboom. Mboom, uh, that's the, the remnants of the percussion group that we had with Max Roach. We did that, and I made a couple trips. <clears throat> I did also play that music, uh, that moving pictures music in Europe, too, in 2010. Then I, you know, made put this record out, the most recent record. That's the landscapes. I've been been doing more touring, more appearing. I just left New York. I was in New York at the end of February, and was out in California in this this past winter and stuff like that. You know, so I'm going to be doing. I'm going to get out. and I'm going to be doing more playing and touring. Right on. Well, mm -hmm. let me talk. Let me talk about these two albums you sent over: the Moving mm -hmm. Pictures Orchestra, beautiful album, Live at Dizzy's. Talk to me a little bit about capturing this in a live environment. It sounded really good. How did it feel to do that live? It, the feeling was um, well. First of all, the, um, the I don't know if you're familiar with David Weiss. Yes. D David Weiss is a trumpet player, and he was the the one who assembled those players. When you're in New York, you know, New York, let's face it, the places for the arts in this country is New York and L.A. with, you know, a few other places, and you know, in Kansas City included. But that current crop of, of, of those uh, people on that CD, they're the young breed, the younger breed of cosmopolitan musicians. There's several generations. I've seen several generations of myself of the, what I call a cosmopolitan. But the cosmopolitan musicians are the are the people that are not only jazz players, but it's just like most jazz players. You got to do a lot of stuff. They they maybe work in their shows, the theater. You know, uh, they record. They do the TV and stuff like that. And when I got to to New York in the early '60s. The the people that were uh, what you consider cosmopolitan were people like Thad Jones, Snooky Young. I don't know if these names mean anything to you. Jerome Absolutely. Richardson, Jerome Richardson, yeah, uh, Garnett Brown, uh, Pepper Adams. Uh, now those that 
group, oh, they're pretty much gone. You know, a lot of those people are gone. And then you have another set that came in, and those were the people like, uh, well, I was a part of that myself. And uh, so, but these are the young players. If you if you look on that on that uh, CD in the list, you might not even know uh, some of those people. Yeah. Craig Handy, he's been around for a while, but these are the, these are they were young, and I specifically told him to get that group to pick from that group. These are people who just got out of music school, got out of out of the schools in New York, or New School, or or uh, New York University, or anywhere. These are these those are those what these what that represents, and they are all good what I call cosmopolitan players. A cosmopolitan player is a player who could play anything, could read anything. They could read any music. They could play jazz. They could play classical music. Everything like that. And so that's who the, that that group is. That's what they represent. Except for myself, maybe Steve Barrios. Steve Barrios was a is a long time. He passed in 2013, but he's a he was a Hispanic. He's a, a, a percussionist and uh, who plays, and it's a rare situation, someone who can play, who's versed in the Afro-Cuban music and also plays jazz drums. That's a very rare situ- situation. And uh, yeah. another one that could fit that bill would be Bobby Sanabria. That's who the, those players are that you see. Right on. The, the movements that go through this album are are, are, are wonderful. But I really like the way M Squad comes together. There was a real, it just sounded like you guys were having a lot of fun with that tune. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, there were four movements to the actual moving pictures suite, which was the prelude, really, Irina, and then there's a, a ballad, Ruth, and then there is uh, the Bimbe section, which is uh, Bimbe, I think it's two version, nine two. Or, and Caravanserai, those are the action movement. The other arrangements were uh, arrangements that I had, that I had written and that I had to fill out the CD. So M-Squad was a piece, uh, I don't know if you're old enough to remember the old um, actual, it was a detective series called the M-Squad with yeah. Lee Marvin. It was the late 50s, early 60s. Yeah. And uh, that is was the theme. I heard that theme way, way back when I was in high school, and I always wanted to do it. It's a, it's a typical bassy, it's bassy uh, arrangement type arrangement. And uh, and when I when I uh, showed it to the to the players, I remember I showed it to them the first night of the engagement at Dizzy's. And in the manner in which, uh, the, when I say the Basie from the, the, the 20s and 30s, the Kansas City, yeah. where you live, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. you know, you should know about Kansas City. Oh yeah, you should know. And uh, the point of fact is that, uh, uh, well, you know, not only was that an error, that's a, oh, that you can spend. Matter of fact, when I teach jazz history, I spend a whole. A whole almost semester on Kansas City alone. Kansas City is 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 a very particular place there, and of course, the Kansas City style was nurtured during the Tom Pendergast era. The thing about it was that they created. When I say they, I mean a lot of the big bands, Basie specifically, they created arrangements on the spot. They created instantaneous arrangements. They'd come up with a hit, uh, with a riff, and then they worked the riff, and then go in backgrounds and, and and like that, put in the solos. But that's the way they did it. Now, I mean, you know, they all could read music. And they had written arrangements later on, as you know, as they developed in you know fifties and sixties. But I showed M Squad. I showed them that just that way. It's a riff right off the head. And they got it right down. They made up the backgrounds, and and it's a really, uh, I it's a, I like I, that the whole feeling of it. I really like that piece myself, the M Squad. Yeah, well, and and speaking of a texture, uh, the vibe that that is, I love landscapes. I love the vibes in that album, mm-hmm. and it sounds like you caught a lot of different flavors with like Havana, for instance. You really got a good feeling 
going on in that song. Talk to me about this album. How did this Well, now the, I'm glad you mentioned Havana because the way uh, I put Havana together was the way was actually the idea I had for the for the album for the CD itself. I wanted to do a a in which I am capable of doing. I wanted to do a like a me myself and I CD. Lay down the drum tracks, percussion tracks, keyboard tracks, and add a bass. And, and on Havana, that's exactly what it is. I'm playing everything. Literally. I, I laid down everything. Cool. And so uh, that is what I wanted to do for the entire CD. Uh, somehow, uh, I don't know why... Well, I, 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 yeah, I, I figured that though I, I would need a, a, a legitimate bass player for a lot of the music, so I just decided, well, let's get, I'll just go get a, a trio, a bass, drum, piano, and then I'll put over the, the, the mallets, and this is what we did. But Havana is, uh, and I like Havana too, because it has, it captures a real Wawanko feeling, and if you know what Wawanko is, the rumba. Yeah, out of out of Cuba, and it it, it captures. Of course, I I learned all of those claves, what they call the claves. I learned that from the from the people like Steve Barrios and Ray Mantier. They showed me the real claves. So uh, Havana is a track that I think came off pretty good. Let me ask you this. Let me go back to the beginning of your life here. You grew up in Philly. Talk to me about how you acquire this love of not only music but jazz. I come from a musical family. That is to say that, uh, well, my parents were uh, musicians and writers. Uh, uh, my mother was a singer and my father was a was a writer. He wanted to, to play, that's what he wanted to do for his career. But And so I, I had four other uh, siblings, uh, four brothers, it was four of us and one sister. And we all had the musical instincts, and our family uh, made sure we had instruments. We started off very young playing. I had family band. My brother uh, played uh, piano, and a brother played saxophone. My sister danced, like that. And uh, we, in that time, when I came up in that area, in that period, we had in uh, what we call a rent. You could rent an instrument. You could take an instrument home and pay for it on monthly payments, weekly, whatever it was. So consequently, uh, uh, all of the kids, everybody picked up an instrument. Everybody in the, in the, in the, I grew up in the projects. Everybody had an instrument. Of course, everybody didn't continue with it, but that's what we did. It was a, a, the nurturing of the arts at that period uh, was very strong. We had bands. Oh, I, I played in the band in the, in the elementary school, and it was in preparation for playing in the band in middle school. It was all connected, and by the time I got to high school, we had we had the marching band, had concert orchestra band, dance band, um, old band that played for the uh, what they call the pep bands for the uh, for the athletic athletic events and. It was a, a very active environment that I grew up in, very in terms of that. And then I was an athlete, too, so it was always music and athletics for me. Was there an album, specifically jazz, a jazz album growing up that you heard that blew, blew your mind Yes, it was. Yes, it was. By the way, I have a, <laughs> I guess I pushed this, it's not published. I got a book out. About my, about my growing up, a student in Illinois wrote a book. I'm just getting, I just edited it and I'm trying to publish it. There was a, two specific albums. You see, coming up now, I'm 74, right? So when I was coming up, my mother and my parents they um, they made sure we heard. They brought all of the, the stuff home, all of the latest. I heard uh, my mother brought a record by Lester Young. It was called Up and Adam. I must have been five years old or something. I don't know if you know that cut. Yeah. Yeah, Up and Adam and um, Buddy Richards on drums. And I know. I remember he played a solo, very a long solo, and he played this role. And I said, oh, and now, wow, you know. And I went, whoa, what is that? <laughs> and she brought Lionel Hampton. 
And you see, we saw those people on TV. You used to see uh, uh, Gene Cooper and those folks on TV, you see, on TV shows. But now, it wasn't until I was 12 years old, when I was 12, I had a friend who had an older brother, and he played this Max Roach, Clifford Brown uh, record for me. And I I was like, you know, it sounded like something from Mars, you know, and he played Miles Davis. Blue Haze, and uh, I remember and I, it, that also sounded like something from Mars, you know, right. because those people were not on TV. Yeah. You know, Max and Miles, they weren't on TV. I discovered them later. Is it, that's my point. The point is, is that you you uh, cater to who you see initially. You know, you, in terms of seeing and hearing, that would have been the, the swing era people. When I heard the Max Roach and the Miles stuff, I was uh, really I was captured right then and there. And that was uh, oh, that had to be fifty-five uh, something around there, fifty-six. So let me ask you this: You said you were into sports and music. Did you always yes. think that you were going to get into music, or did you have other? Uh, I always knew that I, I was a pretty good athlete. I thought I was good, and I was pretty good. I could have gone to college. I could have gone to college. Uh, as a football player, you know, American football, my, the coach was trying to, but I was also, uh, I, I had been working in bands since I was 12 years old. I used to go out on weekends and play rhythm and blues and stuff like that and, and, and uh, make little trips. So I was I was making a little bit of money at that age. I knew that I w- wanted to f- find out, you know, what, what that music was all about, but I also was a very pretty good athlete. I played uh, track. I ran track, played football, played uh, basketball, and when I got to high school, I was a pretty good football player. I could have gone. The coach was trying to get me a scholarship to Virginia, Virginia uh, State, but I was, uh, you know, I was stuck. I, I was done with sports i really i did it and you know i was i wanted to find out i remember the coach telling me you know he said well look i know you play in bands blah 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 but i can get you i know the coach down there but such 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 but i didn't really want to play any more american football i'll tell you the truth yeah i i I played it you know coming up and at that time and you know you had that had these kind of rites of passage that uh, you had to go through in the neighborhood, you know, to prove, you know, you had to either, you had to box. Everybody boxed in the Philly area. You had to box and you had to play football. And so I did it. And, uh, you know, I was I was done with it, kind of, so to speak, because I wanted to do the music. I told the coach, look, I, you know, I don't want to play no more football. Because, you know, you got to train. It's a lot of, you got to put a lot of time into playing football, man. you got to go to, to camps and all that stuff, you know. So Yeah. Well, you end up going to the Philadelphia Conservatory. Yes, I did, yeah. And what did you learn in that formal environment? Well, uh, I had always been attracted as a matter of fact it's a funny thing uh my wife and i we went to a concert down here yesterday it was a concert of uh, mozart's requiem they had the concert at this brand new uh, state-of-the-art uh theater they just put in at the university uh, as a fabulous theater and she said well let's go to this so i went there to, to mozart to hear mozart requiem and then uh, the point of fact is that i know the mozart requiem because i studied composition Com- i was always interested in large orchestral works uh, from the very beginning now i went to a high school the high school i went to <clears throat> chester high school was very advanced high school for that time um we had uh, just to give you an idea. There was a a fellow musician. Uh, he has now since moved to Toronto. He's with the Toronto Symphony, and we went to school together. And he caught up with me and called me and told me, "Well, you know, I really wasn't. I wasn't from Chester. Chester's right outside of Philly. He was from a place called Darby, which is like oh, about forty miles." East, and he said I wasn't from there, but I went there because of the courses. 
the courses that we had at that high school were amazing for that time period. They were like a freshman course in a a college or university. They really were. I was introduced to uh, fundamental orchestration and arranging. Uh, we had theory classes, one, two, theory, music uh, appreciation, ear training. It was amazing high school. When I went into college, when I first year after I got out of high school, I jumped into Philadelphia Conservatory. And I went there, and I was I had a I took a composition course, and I and I was always interested in composed music and working them. I had an older brother who died in '87. He was a uh, a quote classical uh, composer that he wrote in that vein. His name was Stephen Chambers, and he he acquired quite a bit of work. He did some work, uh, and. I had, from listening to him and then listening at, from high school, listening to the works, I had always been interested in orchestral works. And when I went to conservatory and after I left there, I went to D.C. and I moved to D.C., I went to American University studying, studying uh, compositions. That was my thing. I Playing jazz at night and work and going studying uh, composition in the daytime at the schools, so... Let me ask you about being a part of Freddie Hubbard's LP Breaking Point. What was that experience for you like? When I moved to D.C., after I did, I did a, put a year in at Philadelphia Conservatory, and I, I had to, I had to make money, and so uh, I got a job. I don't know if you remember uh, uh, Bobby Charles, a rhythm R and B. Yeah, he had a song called Tossing and Turning. Yeah. Okay, well, now I get an idea of your age. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, I went on the road with that band. We went and we landed in D.C., and I liked, I really liked D.C. I liked what I saw at D.C. at that time. I decided to stay. So that's when I went and I, and I hung out and I got this job at the place called the Bohemian Caverns. Uh, it's a very, very... Uh, landmark spot in D.C. We had a group called the JFK Quintet. And uh, you know a dude named Andy White? Andy White's a very, uh, oh, he's extremely, uh, he was our kind of musical director. Uh, he also played classical oboe. And uh, it was he transcribed, it was a, had a phenomenal transcriber. We had this group called the JFK Quintet. We worked six nights a week. And I worked six nights a week for three years. Amazing. And the thing about it, that's the way all the clubs operated in those days. Even when I got to New York, my first job was at the five spot, and we stayed for three months in 64. But anyway, at this place in D.C., the caverns, everybody would come through town. Well, I mean by everybody. There's still the circuit. You see, they had the theater circuit. Uh, the theaters like um, the Howard in Washington, D.C., the Uptown in Philadelphia, of course, the Apollo in New York, the Regal in Chicago, that circuit, uh, which was live and well for not only rhythm and blues, but for jazz. They had a lot of jazz shows in those, in those theaters. And, uh, you know, everybody came through town, Miles, met Miles, Coltrane, Cannonball, Freddie with the Art Blakey, everybody would come down to the to the caverns. So I met all those people, and so it's like, oh, you come to New York, come to New York. Yeah, yeah. All right. So uh, when I was ready to thought I was ready to leave, and I left, and I, I my first job actually was with Eric Dolphy. Eric Dolphy had come to the caverns. He worked with us for about two weeks, <clears throat> and uh, I met Eric, and Eric was actually my first professional job was with Eric. And then uh, Freddie was ready to leave. He left our Blakey's band. And uh, we did a, we did a, uh, some people are looking for this date. We did a, uh, an engagement. It was Eric Dolphy, Freddie Hubbard, uh, Bobby Hutchison on vibes and Richard Davis on bass and, and myself. We did a, sh a show live in Brooklyn. And uh, it was recorded. And I, for the love of me, I don't know where that recording is. But 
anyway, so Freddie was ready to, 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 to start his band, and so he got me with Ron Matthews, who was uh, Eddie Kahn, James Spaulding. Yeah, that was the group. So we jumped out, and uh, actually we had, oh, we had about, oh, we had six or seven, eight weeks of work. Uh, we did eight weeks, and then we went in and recorded that that music, that breaking point. So let me jump to New York. '63, you get there, and as you said, you hooked up with Eric Dolphin, was kind of in the avant-garde scene. What was it like to be in that scene as it was kind of coming into fruition, and to be around a force like Eric Dolphin? Well, the thing about it was. Uh, uh, Eric, I don't consider Eric uh, as a part of the so-called avant-garde. By that, I mean, uh, not only did I, but actually it was Freddie that pulled me in. I got pulled into the uh, Blue Note, the Blue Note scene, and I started doing these dates. And it was really, it was Eric, because uh, Eric did a date for Blue Note. It's called Out to Lunch. And he had Freddie Hubbard on it. Who else was on it? Bobby. Had... Now, Tony Wims was the drummer on it. Now, here's the thing. Eric knew that I was trying to write music. Matter of fact, I had written all his music while I was studying in, in uh, D.C. I wrote a piece called Mirrors. And it was a, actually it was a classroom assignment. That's what it was. And it was supposed to, to be an example of mirror writing. And so I had that piece. He heard it. He told me when I got to New York, he told me to come to the rehearsal, the rehearsal for Out to Lunch, where I wasn't even playing drums on it. Tony Williams was the drummer on it. He told me to come. He told me to bring music and to bring mirrors. He was trying to get me in. That's what it was. I came there. And I pulled out the music and showed it, you know, to everybody. And Freddie Hubbard saw it, and he liked it. And, you know, he subsequently recorded it. And I remember, I remember so clearly, uh, Tony Williams, you know who, of course, you know, he's the great Tony Williams. Yeah. Uh, he was in awe. He was in awe of me. He was in awe of me pulling out that music. To me, it was nothing. But there was no drummer's. There were no drummers around except maybe Max Roach, who was pulling out music at arrangements. None. There was nobody around. And so, and that's another thing. Well, I'll get to that later. But I pulled out that music, and Tony Williams was. He, I remember the look. He was. He was in awe of it. And point of fact is, Freddie took them, took it, and he made a recording of it. Like it was like that. And the Blue Note people, uh, Alpha Lyons and Frank Wolf, they wanted me to. After I got did did that and made the date with uh, Freddie Hubbard, I started getting all kind of calls to record. Uh, if you know my records, you know it, I I recorded with uh, Bobby Hutchison. We did nine albums for Blue Note. Joe Henderson, you. Know, uh, McCoy, Tyner, and Herbie was on a lot of those dates. Sam Rivers, Andrew Hill. So I was just like in. I, I was in the Blue Note family, so to speak. I was getting these calls to record every month, just about, about two recordings a month. It was like that. But they, they called me. They wanted me to record as a leader back then. But I didn't. I had no sense of, uh, I had no business sense at all. I, I just. I, I just shucked it off. Like, uh, the guy asked me, Alpha Line, look, you know, won't you come and show me some uh, more of your music? Blah blah blah. I didn't even do it. I, I was just, just, I was a space. I was, <laughs> I didn't know. I, I was too happy to be a side man, you know. What What did you learn about being around folks like you know Mingus and Wayne Shorter and Hutcherson and uh, McCoy Tyner? What did you get from being around them? Uh, well, you get you get a lot of things, you know. It's uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's the one thing that uh, you learn. I, I actually learn how to play by coming to New York. <laughs> now, I don't when I teach today, uh, and I teach the young people in the schools and colleges, and and 
I don't uh I don't encourage them to come to New York like that. A place like New York is is it's not a place to be encouraged to come. Especially today, maybe always, but I, back then I didn't care. I, you know, I was I was stupid. Another, you know, I was <laughs> romance. It was like I didn't care what you. I thought that if you struggle, that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. But you know, like uh, I tell the young students, it see a place like New York is not for everybody. It is not for everybody. First of all, it is. Today, now when I came to New York, you could you could get an apartment. You paid one hundred fifty dollars a month for a two bedroom apartment. Yeah, right. One hundred forty dollars, one hundred fifty dollars a month. You 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 couldn't even get a, a kitchenette today in New York. A kitchenette, you know what that is? You you know that the beginning prices for a a kitchenette is like fifteen hundred dollars a month, two thousand wow. dollars a month. Yeah. Not even one bedroom. It is, it, it is, which is the as far as uh, today, and uh, it could be relatively speaking. You know, if you relatively speaking, you, you say okay, back in sixty, sixty two, sixty three, uh, you could get a rent. You paid rent one hundred fifty dollars a month, all right, but you wasn't making. You made about a hundred. You made about two hundred dollars a week on a gig. So it's relative. The point I'm making is that. The main issue in a city like New York, and it's not just New York, I would say most uh, uh, large metropolitan areas in this country is housing, affordable housing. You have to start off paying almost $2,000 a month for a, a kitchenette these days. It's just insane. The living costs are just incredibly insane to live in New York. And just just that alone. So uh, to get back to your point, when I worked in uh, D.C., when we worked at that place six nights a week for three years, it, it takes a lot to do that. You have to have to be extremely rehearsed. We have to have to change the program from week to week and like that. But, you know, we really couldn't play. But, uh, I mean, we really didn't have... We weren't strong players individually. Now, see, when I got to New York, I learned how to. I learned how to bash, what we call bash, swing hard. I didn't really know how to swing back then. I was dabbling at it, but I learned how to to swing by working with Hubbard and uh, McCoy Turner. Especially McCoy China. You see, I know you're familiar with the, the Coltrane, that quartet, and people think that Elvin Jones was the force behind it. And Elvin was there. You know who was the force behind that? It was McCoy China. The driving force yeah. was McCoy China. I found that out. McCoy China, and he's older these days, but McCoy China is stronger than any drummer. He's strong. He will pull you. He'll pull you along. What I'm saying is that if you ever saw, did you ever see that group live? No. Yeah, that's before your time. Yeah, you heard yeah. the records. Oh, yeah. You, yeah, you had to see that group live to see. You had to have had to have seen that group live. And uh, you would see the way they played, the way they swung, the way they drove is... And and it would look like it was Elvin though, but it wasn't Elvin. It was McCoy. When McCoy Tyner was the driving force behind that group, he was the one that was pulling Elvin along. So I learned that. I learned that by working with McCoy Tyner. I learned how to how to play hard like that, and even Freddie also. So this is the things you learn. You learn when you come that when you come to New York, and you. And you uh, play with people like that, and, and Mingus, because that's a. Uh, but it's it's also uh, the other side of that is that, um, in terms of all of, it, for example, the the recordings and dates that I did for Blue Note, there weren't weren't many working bands. They weren't working bands. They sounded like working bands because of the way we we went about the recordings. So for Alpha Line Blue Note, 
you re- re- rehearse for a whole week, three, four, five days, and then you go and record. And that's making you sound like a working band. See, yeah. those bands weren't working bands. And <clears throat> so consequently, it was an individual. This is too much individuality in jazz. That's the problem that I see. What I'm saying is that you don't have enough cooperative group cooperations or group consciousness, so to speak. You got a lot of individuals, too much individuality in my instance, uh, and, and that's the other side of it. So, so let me ask you this. You know, Max Roach was a mentor for you. Tell me about being in the incarnations of Roach's M Boom Percussion Ensemble. What M was Boom, that like? yeah, yeah. Nineteen seventy, um, uh, Max called myself. Uh, who was Warren Smith, Roy Brooks? He initially called Jack D. Jeanette. Oh, Jack was a little too busy. He was busy with Miles, so he called us all uh, together. And uh, actually, it grew out of. Um, Something he used to call rise and fly. Uh, now um, they used to have back in the original Birdland. Now they might have had this back in the old Kansas City too. Uh, I don't, I'm not. What I'm saying is, I don't think it's a new situation. But it's like the Battle of the Drums. Yeah. So now what they would do in Birdland uh, when I got there, it was still going on. They don't do it now. I try to to put this to some club owners, but they would get four or five of the top drummers on the scene and they have a group. They would have a group behind them, a small group, you know, four or five players. And each drummer would take a turn with the group and then in the end they would all be on the stage and they would all like kind of battle. Or not, they could battle, they would put battle, but they would all have their turn to shine and then they would end up playing it. Together, it was a tremendous show. It would be the place would be packed to the rafters for the for this to call the Gretsch Drum Night, and then they would go on the road with this. They would tour with this, and I, you know, I had heard of and Max's would take this to Europe to Japan. Four or five drummers on one, or like they might have like I remember when the night I saw him, it was Max, Art Blakey. Elvin Jones, uh, Mel Lewis, uh, maybe Philly Joe Jones. And he would take this type of thing. They would go on the road and and do tours in Europe with, with that thing. He didn't want to do that. He he didn't want to have that kind of format because I remember I asked him, I said, well, look, what are we going to do? Five, he said, no, 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 we're going to do percussion. We're going to work the percussion, the, the orchestral cu- percussion that we know in our culture, which consists of uh, hundreds of instruments, but we're talking about timpani, the timpani, the drum set, of course, timpani, all the mallet instruments, xylophone, marimba, uh, vibraphone, uh, glockenspiel, orchestra bells, uh, crow tallies, chimes, tunable times, uh, African drums, Kunga drum, hand drums, and see it leads you into world music. You because you can deal with with you start dealing with different ethnic drums. So that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to, we wanted to. So we took we had to learn how to do that. We took we took a whole year out in 1970 with no work. We just practiced. You had to learn the instruments. Yeah. That was when I began to get into the mallets. Now, I already was a piano, piano player of sorts. I knew the piano. So I, going to the vibes wasn't that hard for me. Uh, you know, you just got to learn the sticking. So we all had to take out, and we had to learn how to play the vibraphone. We had to learn how to play the marimba. We had to learn how to play timpani properly. So that's what we did for a year, a whole year. We just... We rehearsed. We got together every Friday, every Saturday, and learned. It was learning the instruments. We did that, and uh, and we got our first work a situation came up. It must have been seventy two, seventy two around there. We went to Dartmouth University and uh, 
So we did. Uh, we put out some some CDs and made some tours. And it was all through Max Roach, of course. So let me ask you this. I want to get kind of into a little bit of your teaching component of your life. What is your philosophy as a teacher? Most of the teaching uh, uh, that I've come across uh, has been in relationship to jazz. I am a so-called jazz professor. But the thing of it is, is that... Uh, you have to realize that people should realize or be made known that jazz. To know jazz, you have to know you have to know all of the elements of music, all of the fundamental fundamental elements that we deal with in our system. In other words, to be a good jazz player, you really have to know a, a lot about harmony and theory, the harmonic structure of and the system of. of of music that we deal with here, and so consequently, you have to have a very uh, thorough knowledge of what they call classical music. You have to have a sound classical background to be able to play jazz. There's no yeah. doubt about it. <laughs> yeah. So, in teaching jazz per se, and I tell students this also, I tell them this everywhere. Listen, if you you cannot learn to play jazz in a school. The intrinsic ingredient of of jazz, uh, well, we'll give a definition, a, a very generic definition. Jazz is a music that it can that it consists of uh, elements of basically African, European, some degree Native American, whose intrinsic ingredient is that of improvisation. That is very generic. That's that's a definition of jazz. So but you go to a music school, any music school, you will learn you should be able to improve your fundamentals in reading and uh hearing your ear, uh uh, uh harmony, theory, uh, to some degree uh composing and arranging, but you will not learn how to play jazz in a school. You cannot teach swing. You, you you cannot verbalize swing. I say that, and I say it straight out. That's yeah. what I, you will not learn how to swing in a school. To learn how to swing, first of all, I, I'm also saying you do is something that's not verbalized. It is a, a thing that has to be learned through an apprenticeship. You have to apprentice yourself underneath some masters. And you learn by doing day in and day out, night in and night out. That is the way you learn the intrinsic ingredient of jazz. And uh, I stand by that. And as one who is a so-called jazz educator. Let me ask you this. Why do you love jazz? You've dedicated your life to it. But tell me why you love jazz. I don't know if <laughs> I don't know if I do love jazz. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I I know. I think it. I it's me. I think it is. Uh, it is me. It's in me. It is there. The essence of it. Uh, and I think. Uh, and I'm I'm like uh, Max, and a lot of the masters uh, uh, on back to Duke Ellington. Uh, they never. They don't like these terms, man. Uh, and uh, like bebop and uh, no, no, no. they 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 hated those terms, man. Max and Miles, oh, no, they don't they don't like these these nicknames. Max used to call them nicknames. It's it's not enough when you say jazz. Of course, you know jazz is in the it's it's a it's a term that's uh, in our society. It's in the grammar, and but it connotates a lot of things. It connotates a lot of, of nebulous negative things the term itself uh is a derivative of jazz j a s s which there has been as far as i know as far as i've researched there's been no uh, except from the uh, we can't determine where it's coming from creole some say well it's african there's no uh you can't uh, d- relate it back to that that relates to some kind of creole or broken language Creole being a derivative of French, jazz, J-A-S-S, hence jazz, 
but it has a connotation. It has a sexual connotation. Well, not that's not negative, but it has right. a, a jazz. It has a sexual connotation. Yeah. Jazz, jazz me. They used to say, "Jazz me, baby." You know, you know. So it, it has that, and then it, it's there was always a, a thing, a, 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 and always a kind of a theory, not theory, but a a, a notion. And they would say this, especially in the uh, black. Uh, ethnic situation in 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 preachers uh that it was uh, the devil's music now what they probably meant was that n- not so much the theory itself the music but the environment in which it was nurtured which was the initial nurturing point of uh, uh, something that is distinctly called jazz and, and and but see when i teach jazz history <laughs> jazz history for me, goes all the way back to uh, you had to go all the way back to Egypt. Now, <laughs> in my way of thinking, and, and then there's the uh, the migrations and the slave trade and all that. I'm going to give you a whole theory, a whole lecture now. But uh, when you teach jazz history, when I teach jazz history, I go back to I go I do that whole trip back to Egypt, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. But to teach it properly, uh, and it, as far as the shores of America, you get to go from work songs, you go to work songs, you go to uh, spirituals, spirituals are different than gospel, spirituals, work song, minstrelsy, all of this is a part of it. Yeah. Ragtime, the development of ragtime, and, and jazz as a connotation, as a distinct uh element of something comes into play in the in the latter part of the 19th century and it was developed in the whorehouses the brothels of new orleans which was uh initially a place for pianists piano players but then came the bands uh they brought in the bands and so that to me was the uh the where the connotation of uh, jazz being a devil's music applied in those early days being the devil's music because of the environment in which it was nurtured. I'm like uh, I'm like Max and all those castles. I don't have a term. I don't have a... That is a term that is known. I, I have no term. People say, well, it's the American classical music. Well, in effect, that's true. For me, it's true. It's the most developed of the uh, indigenous musics. And there's a lot of stuff that stems off of, of jazz, of course, uh, spirituals, gospel. And even to some degree, with minstrelsy, uh, comes off, uh, the Broadway shows come off of a minstrel format, so to speak. Yeah. And then you have the uh, Great American Songbook. The Great American Songbook is something that's distinct, distinctly American. That's a, a distinct, very distinct American innovation in all of music. <laughs> well, you know what the Great American Songbook is. Oh yeah, oh yeah. 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 And so, uh, and and what I'm saying, and as to your initial question, and so far is, uh, there's there's there are things, the lifestyle that uh, is associated with jazz stereotypes. Uh, that was associated, especially in the modern, so-called modern era, the bebop era, uh, and drugs, which <clears throat> drugs became a prominent part of the uh, of the Black American community. In the, uh, if you remember seeing uh, the Godfather, you see the Godfather series. Oh, yeah. Remember they had that big meeting up there of the bosses. This I think was the first one, and uh, Brando called all of the people together, and they were trying to decide whether they're gonna do gonna do drugs. He didn't want to get into the narcotics business, yep. and so uh, one guy stood up and said, "Well, you know, uh, yeah, I don't. We don't want it around children. We don't want it around the schools. Let's put it in the in the dark. Put it in with the black people. Remember that? Yep, I do. Yeah, so." That is to say, I mean, you don't you, you see something there. That don't mean you have to take it. But yeah. the black, the drugs, those kind of drugs, were distributed in the black community in the end of the thirties, beginning of the forties, and of course the association of Charlie Parker 
with who Charlie Parker who became a drug addict in in the hospital. So uh, I'm telling you, son, that's, that's your history there. Yeah. No, but anyway, so these things, and uh, I'm saying as to answer your question, uh, it's not so much, uh, it is me. It's not so much what I love or just not like it, or it's just, it's just me. It's a part yeah. of me. It is me. That's Absolutely. It. So I, that I hope that answers sense. your question. Yeah, yeah, it totally does. And I have one last question. I know you're... You're far from being done in your career, but when the world leans back on the easy chair and they peel back the layers of jazz history, how would you like to be remembered for the contributions you made? I'd like to be remembered as a person who was extremely creative and particularly uh, as a percussion, a drummer who composed. This is why I, I always try to compose I'm still trying I'm trying to build myself uh, or present myself as one who is uh, total in totality of being a musician and the one who is and also this breaks a stereotype for, for drummers too because drummers have a, have a particular stereotype hanging over them and this is why I like Max Roach I like Max Roach because he was a model. He was a, a, a model for me to to. He showed me how to be in the music business. Yeah, you see, uh, Max was always doing stuff like orchestras, uh, choirs, uh, uh, theater. He, he created him. He was always. Uh, uh, Ahead, always branching out. I liked a lot of drummers, but Max was the one that I was actually trying to be like, really. So I like to to when they when they lay out my story, they have to lay it out as someone who's in totality was a complete uh, musician from performing drums, percussion, and also composing and arranging. Right on. That's perfect. That's a perfect way to wrap everything up. Joe, thank you for giving me your story and giving me your time today, man. Thanks for all the music. All right. Thank you. So, Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Joe for his incredible journey, his music, and all that wisdom. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes store or visit the neonjazz.blogspot.com for all things neon jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.